So, Paula, I just want to stop you there for a second mm-hmm. before we get into the afford anything era and ask you, have you heard of the fire movement? I have heard of it and I love it (laughs) I love it, I love it, I love it (laughs) Welcome to the FI Show where you get a behind the scenes look into financial independence Here's your host, Cody and Justin And a happy new year (laughs) What's up, guys, and welcome to another episode of The Fi Show. So today, Justin and I have probably one of our favorite episodes we've recorded to date, and it just went so smooth, it was super conversational, and just awesome philosophy about the whole financial independence movement, and who we have on today is Paula Pant of Afford Anything. Justin, how did you like this one? I love this one, and I think coming into a new year, it's one of those great shows to kind of get you kicked off for the start of the new year and get to thinking about that gap. But if you don't know what the gap is, you should probably turn it over to Paula. Take it away. So I, when I was in college, I really wanted to study abroad. But the study abroad programs were prohibitively expensive. They were between fifteen dollars to $20,000 for a single semester. And so I thought about it, and I realized I didn't actually want to study. I just wanted to go abroad. And so it occurred to me that when I graduated, rather than getting a job and spending the next 40 years there, I thought, what if I graduate, work for a few years to save up some money, and then quit that job and go travel? And that's what I decided to do. So really, the origin of all of this was that I just wanted to go travel. I wanted to go see the world. And that was a strong enough motivation that it was the overriding factor in a lot of the decisions that I made right out of school. So I graduated from college in 2005, and I took a job at a newspaper, a small newspaper, in Colorado, and I earned a starting salary of $21,000 per year in 2005. And I spent three years at the paper, and at the time that I quit, which was in 2008, I earned $31,000 a year. And that, I didn't know it at the time, but that would be my last time ever working for somebody else. So $31,000 a year is the highest salary that I ever earned uh, working for someone else. During those three years that I was at the paper, I freelanced during the evenings and weekends, and I saved every dime of that freelance money after taxes into a travel fund. And so at the end of three years, I had saved $25,000, which was, I mean, if you think about, put that in perspective, that's like on average a full year of salary from what I was making at the time. And broken down, I mean, that averages out to like saving about 800 a month. So so I'd saved the 25K, and then when I did that, I, I quit my job. This was in April of 2008. Quit my job, let the lease, uh, I, I timed the quitting of my job at the exact time that the lease on my apartment was going to expire. So I quit my job. I didn't renew the lease on my apartment. I, my cell phone contract was over, so I didn't have any other commitments. And then I, I just traveled. Um, I backpacked around. I mostly went to countries where the dollar exchange rate really worked in my favor, Uh, So I spent a lot of time in Egypt and then in Southeast Asia, you know, Laos, Cambodia, just places where the U.S. dollar can can really stretch further. And I lived on a budget of $1,000 per month, and I did that for the next two years. I came back to the U.S. in 2010, and I decided I wanted to make a full-time go of self-employment. I didn't want to go back into the workforce. And so I started, you know, I'd already been freelancing while I was at the newspaper, 
And I'd freelanced just a little bit while I was traveling, but I decided I was going to ramp that up and turn it into a full-time thing. And it took about a year and a half between when I came back to the States and when my freelancing became like good enough, robust enough that I started making a, a six-figure income. So that was eye-opening for me because I saw that yeah, you know, the like I said, the most I'd ever made working for someone else was thirty-one thousand a year, and within a year and a half of actually taking my freelancing seriously and actually trying to do it full time, within a year and a half I was making six figures. So that was a big eye opener in terms of like the notion that I could make a lot more working for myself than I could somebody else, at least in my situation. But then the other thing was that I was really scared, you know, because self employment can be volatile and you go through feast and famine moments. And I was very scared that I might have to get a job again. Like, what if I go through some prolonged contraction and a bunch of my clients drop me all at the same time and work dries up for six months? Like, what if I couldn't survive that? And I had to go back into like bumper to bumper traffic. I didn't want to do that. And so I started just saving up all of my money. I, I lived as though I was still making 21K, you know, uh, I lived that same lifestyle and just saved all of this extra money that I was making and used it to start buying rental properties. And kind of one led to the next, led to the next. And so eventually I built a big enough rental property portfolio that last year my rentals grossed 125000 and netted 43000 after all expenses, including the mortgage. So by doing that, it, it ironically, like, yeah, it's building financial independence, but I didn't, ironically, I didn't build it so that I could retire. I built it so that I could work. I built it because I wanted to be self-employed and I wanted to safeguard against having to do any other different type of work other than the one that I wanted to do. So Paula, I just want to stop you there for a second mm -hmm. before we get into the afford anything era and ask you, have you heard of the fire movement? <laughs> I have heard of it and I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, yeah, I was just curious when you were, you know, you'd, you'd work three years and then you said, I'm just going to go travel. I'm going to quit my job. I'm leaving my lease behind. Did you have like friends and family who were telling you you were nuts or would you have a pretty supportive group around you? No, everybody told me that I was absolutely bonkers. Uh, <laughs> and if you think about it, so 2008, that's the recession, right? Mm. The recession had just started. And I worked for a print newspaper, which I'm sure the younger people listening to this are like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I was in a declining, dying industry, like the Seattle Post Intelligencer had just shut down. The Rocky Mountain News had just shut down. All these major newspapers were either shutting down or going online only. And, you know, I'm in this dinosaur of an industry during the biggest recession of our lifetime. And everybody told me that I was never going to get a job again. And in, in hindsight, they were right. I never did get a job again. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing was, so what are you freelancing about that you're earning six figures? I mean, you come from a, you come from a newspaper gig and then you're traveling mm -hmm. How do you, how do you, what are you actually freelancing about at that point? Ah, that's a really good question. So, so this was the most important thing that I did as a freelance writer is I niched down. And in the beginning, I, I was like, I can write about anything. And when you try to write about <laughs> everything, you end up writing about nothing because nobody hires a person who claims to be able to write about whatever. <laughs> and so I knew that I needed to 
find something that I would specialize in. And for a while, I didn't know what. Like, I thought about wine writing because I was like, that'd be cool. I could just drink (laughs) wine all day and call it work. But then somebody gave me the advice to write about what I love to read the most. And nerdy as this may sound, I've always loved reading about personal finance. Like, always loved reading Kiplinger magazine. I read the book The Millionaire Next Door when I was in high school. So I just became a freelance personal finance writer. So, Paula, I think that we're eerily similar. Like when I heard about your story, I'm like, that's me in girl form. And something I'm curious about, I haven't really heard you talk about this much. It seems like your hunger for outside success stems from a fear of not having enough or running out of money. And I'm wondering why you didn't make like the full traveler leap. Like when I went to Australia, I saw so many people who are just living day to day, like through the gig economy, they're living it up. Like they're a scuba instructor in Thailand. And there are people who make that career work for, you know, 30, 40 years. So do you mm-hmm. ever consider that route? Or did you always want to come back and kind of earn that outsized income? Yeah, no, a lot of my friends do that. Like a, a ton of my friends are permanent gig lifers. I, I'm wired differently. I think I, I think there's a big part of me that feels that, and this is this indicates a level of emotional unhealthiness. But I think there's a big part <laughs> of me that ties my sense of self worth to my achievements. And when I say achievements, I don't mean monetarily. Like we'll take newspaper writing as an example. You know, nobody goes into newspapers for the money. But if you can get a byline in the New York Times, there's still that element of prestige there even though there might not be a a financial benefit or a big financial benefit. And I think that I've always tied my sense of self-worth to how much I have achieved in a broad but career sense of the word. And so for me personally, if I had done the permanent gig life thing, if I had been like a snowboarding instructor during the winters and a whitewater rafting instructor during the summers uh, and (laughs) had spent you know, like a lot of my friends do, you know, and they're like six months in Guatemala and then six months in Bali or whatever. Like, I think that there would be a part of me that would always wonder whether or not I had the chops to really cut it in like the the U.S. career world or the U.S. business world. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very interesting because I've heard a lot of people say like the go-kart crackers and millennial revolutions of the world they're just those gig economy people who are too scared to, to make the full leap. So they build up this crazy nest egg. And that's what we call fire. <laughs> oh, yeah. Big time. I would agree with that 100 percent. Like there are a lot of people who are living the benefits of fire without the money. Like if we think about fire as a fully funded lifestyle change, there are millions of people who made the lifestyle change with zero funding. Right. <laughs> we yeah. like the fire movement. We are the more conservative end of that who secures the finance part of it first before we go and make the leap. But, you know, I've got like on my podcast, I I interviewed my friend Kim. She's one of my best friends. And her whole life story is this perfect example of just she went gig to gig and then she worked in AmeriCorps for a little while. And she was an art model which is a euphemism, I'm just going to say. Um, <laughs> and, you know, she that was she just basically like with sometimes no more than two or three hundred dollars in her bank account, just like ran around working gigs and supporting herself and having adventures. And a lot of people do that. And there's a part of me that's like, man, I'd, 
I would probably be a lot more chill if I had the temperament, like if I was wired in a way where I would be happy doing that. I know myself well enough to know that I'm not, but it's cool to see people who are. Yeah. I mean, you have to have like no fear and you have to be very comfortable with that with a ton of risk, which a lot of people in the fire community just, just aren't. I mean, you always see a lot of us who just keep building up a contingency plan after contingency plan. And so they, it is admirable to kind of see somebody who can throw that caution to the wind, even though a lot of us would advise against it. It would be nice to have a little bit of that mentality sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so going on the same thread of like the fire person versus the crazy gig economy person, what do you say to a college student who's kind of deciding their major? Do you tell them to go pursue their passions, even though their passions might pay 25K a year? Or do you think they should aim for a more high level salary type position? Oh, no. I think if you choose a major based on the income that you think you'll make, you'll last for maybe a couple of years and then you'll drop out because the passion's not there. Cough, cough, me. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Like, you can only fake it for so long. And if you're not interested in a topic, if you're not interested in a subject, then what's most likely going to happen is that you're going to spend years in school possibly accumulating thousands or tens of thousand dollars worth of debt along the way in order to get a degree in something that you don't even like and that you don't actually want to do. So that just seems like compounding loss on top of loss. It's much wiser, in my view, to choose the thing that excites you because you are most likely to succeed in the thing that excites you. And basically, Everything, even things that are traditionally low paying, can, if you are flexible, be spun in a way that they become high paying. Again, we'll just take journalism as an example. Working at a small town print newspaper as an entry level reporter pays $31,000 a year. But taking that same skill set of writing articles, being good at mass communication, doing conducting interviews, learning deeply about a topic and then translating a complicated topic in easy to understand, simplified but not simplistic terms to a mass market audience. Like those are the skill sets of a freelance writer or a blogger or a podcaster. So while newspapers themselves may not pay much, or at least in the in local markets, in many local markets, they don't pay very much, you can take that same skill set and use it to become a six-figure freelance writer or a, you know, very successful blogger, a podcaster, or a, or a whole myriad of other things. Like you could start your own PR firm. You could write scripts for YouTube videos for, for major channels. There's so many things that you can do if you think a little bit more creatively about the thing that interests you. You know, I think that mentality, especially with the college degree question is, you know, spot on. I'm, I'm right behind you, but it does seem to go against the grain a good bit with the typical person in the United States and probably what they're telling their kids or, or the pressures they feel themselves. I'm curious with all the amazing places that you've traveled to, have you noticed anything in some of these different cultures that where you feel like, oh man, these people just really haven't figured out compared to the way the United States does things? No, no. Um, well, okay. So I'm Nepalese. Uh, I was born in Kathmandu and in the like among Nepalese immigrants to the U.S., the pressure, let me put it this way. When I was a kid, nobody asked me what I was going to be when I grew up. They said, are you going to be a doctor or an engineer? (laughs) Like those were my only two choices because in 
you know, I can't speak for all cultures, but I, I, I can at least speak for Nepal because that's the one that I'm most intimately familiar with. In that culture, like, you don't have the luxury of wanting to follow your passion. Like, you can either live in Nepal where there are no jobs, there's no infrastructure, there's poor sanitation, there's lack of rule of law, and there's civil insurrection that caused 13,000 civilian casualties in the last two decades. Like, you can either live there or you can try to get a visa to a more stable developed country like Australia or England or the U.S., but in order to get that visa, you're going to have to find an employer who's going to sponsor you. And that means most likely that you're going to have to come here on a student visa, see if you can get an H-1B. Like the, the industries in which that's most likely to happen, probably engineering, maybe programming. Maybe if you come here and go to med school, you can get hired and then get sponsored for a visa. Eventually, if, if you're lucky, turns into a permanent residency. So there are a lot of very pragmatic considerations that you need to make. And, and when you have this immigrant community, the first-generation immigrants who come to the U.S. with that at the forefront of their mind, they're not really, at least my parents, speaking for my own family, they weren't thinking about what would make me happy. They were just trying to make sure I was secure. And the most surefire path to being secure was, well, you've got two choices, doctor or engineer. You know, they knew that if I just stuck to that, I would be okay. And that's really at that level, that's what you're optimizing for. It's not for like self-actualization is the top of the Maslow pyramid. And you can't get to the top of the Maslow pyramid until you have security nailed. And in in the immigrant communities, that security feels rather shaky. That's you know what? Actually, going back to earlier in this interview, I wonder and I'm just like armchair Freuding myself <laughs> right now, but I wonder if maybe Maybe some of that like sense of insecurity and drive to accomplish that I have, and, like maybe the fact that I couldn't be satisfied with the gig life comes from that. It comes from that wanting to make sure that I'm secure and wanting to prove that bringing me to the U.S. was worth it. So something I've heard you talk about, Paula, and I think this is just a perfect lead in from what we were talking about before. Having a first generation immigrant background kind of just shape your whole financial views and I know that one of the beefs you have with the fire movement in general is that a lot of people claim and scream frugality when it's just what other normal people do that don't have a lot of money. And so I'd love if you could talk about <laughs> yeah. that a bit. Like people are like, oh, like I'm house hacking. People might live in a one bedroom house with like seven people in a really poor country and it's just not out of the ordinary. So I'd love if you could just touch on your philosophy there. Oh, you nailed it. Like you said that so well. That that's exactly that's exactly it. It's totally my beef with the fire community is like and I mean, okay, I should asterisk here. I'm very happy that there is a subset of the population that would otherwise be living these wasteful, extravagant, indulgent lives, but that are not doing it because they have found the fire movement. Like I'm very happy about that. But at least speaking for myself again, like when I first started reading about some of the more popular fire bloggers many years ago, none of it, I just, I couldn't relate to any of it because everything that other people described as frugal to me just sounded like that's just how you live. <laughs> like, duh, like that's just, you know, like people are like, drive a 10-year-old car. And I'm like, well, duh, doesn't everybody do that? <laughs> Or, yeah, I mean, don't buy a McMansion. Live in a two-bedroom home, even if you are a family of six, and that means all the kids are sharing a room and maybe one of the kids sleeps in the living room. Like, 
yeah, that that sounds pretty normal. Yeah, I think sometimes we just forget our fire privilege when we're debating whether we should like contribute to a traditional or a Roth. And then there's people in other countries trying to figure out what they should eat for dinner. <laughs> yeah, and, and not just other countries, but here too. True. Like, okay, so I have a friend who lives here in Las Vegas. And I'm just going to I'm going to pull her story because she's it, it would be very easy for me to fall back on stories of my cousins who just moved to the U.S. and they're living like the recent immigrant lifestyle. It's very easy for me to pull stories from there. But but even outside of like new immigrant communities, like I've got a friend who lives here in Las Vegas who is recently divorced. She's 42 or 43. She has a son who I think is around nine and because of the divorce, like she's she basically doesn't have a whole lot right now. And um, so she lives with roommates. She shares one bedroom in a three bedroom home with roommates. And her son, her nine year old son lives with her half of the time. He's with his dad the other half of the time. And when he's at her house, he shares a bedroom with her. Right. So she's a mom, a single mom living in a home with the roommates and her nine-year-old son shares a bedroom. And that's not because they're frugal. That's because that's all that they have the money to do. Like that's the best that they can afford. And, and I, so I guess one of my frustrations with some people in the fire community, like I get very frustrated when people say I can't. And oftentimes people say like, well, I can't X, Y, Z because I have kids and my kids need their own bedroom. Or I've even heard people claim, like, my kids need their own house. <laughs> and I'm like, have you ever met people who just don't have that option? Like, because there are a bajillion people out there who I'm sure they would love to have the luxury of making the choice that you're making, but it's not a choice for them. They just don't have the money to do it. Like, end of story, full stop. That option is just not on the table. And so for you to say that you quote unquote can't or to claim that it is impossible, like negates or, or invalidates the reality that a lot of lower income people have. It also negates or invalidates your own ability to choose. Yeah, that just had me thinking about like my own situation where as a kid, you know, like when it's just me and my mom and she goes back to cosmetology school, we have zero income and we're getting like back channel meat that is uh out of date from my uncle who was like a magic for grocery store like if i would have heard of these podcasts and stuff that's talking about you know skipping out on a on starbucks i would have been like well, what is starbucks i'd never even seen one like growing up <laughs> in the middle of nowhere mississippi so yeah i mean it's true that it's it doesn't just it's not just people in other countries it's not just immigrants there's so many pockets in the u.s where no matter how frugal we may think we are they're they're doing this out of necessity and they're not, you know, they're not doing it and patting themselves on the back. They're doing it because they have to. Exactly. Exactly. So, Paula, I mean, I'm not that close to that community, I guess. I was very fortunate to grow up in a middle class lifestyle where I knew that every meal was coming. But for someone in that situation, which may not be a high percentage of the listeners, but what would you say to someone like how do they pull themselves out of that hole? Mm. I would say you don't have a spending problem. You have an earning problem. And the way to pull yourself out is to make more money. And that that's another area in which I disagree with a lot of the FIRE community. I mean, I guess like people often talk from the perspective from which they're coming, right? So when you have these voices in the FIRE community that say like, oh, it's not about what you earn. It's about what you save. 
Well, what you earn determines how much you can save. Because at a certain point, there's a, a minimum floor beyond which you can't really frugal down any further. I mean, you know, you can live in the back of your car and cook ramen noodles on a camp stove. But you, <laughs> in order to do that, you still need a car and you still need a camp stove, right? So, so there's a certain point beyond which, like, you don't have a spending problem. You have an income problem. And I mean, in my own experience, the route that I found towards making more came from entrepreneurship because, and that might not be true for everyone. Like, certainly if you have a law degree, you could probably make more money, you know, being an attorney or you know, finding a job at a, a more well-paying job at a bigger law firm that has a bigger budget to pay you. Sure, absolutely. But if you have a high school degree or if you are a liberal arts undergrad from a state college, as I was, and you don't have a long job history and you don't have a lot of you don't see a lot of opportunities in the like normal nine to five job market, working for yourself, starting that side hustle and growing it can be really, really powerful. Like the big opportunity that you have having a lower income is that an extra one thousand dollars a month which to, to a high earner sounds like a rounding error, to you is a life-changing amount. And because you're already used to living on a very slim budget, you can then take just continue living the way you currently are and take all of that extra income and save it. Yeah, I love that philosophy. And I'm going to go grab my tent now because I'm definitely in your camp there. <laughs> <laughs> but Paula, I bet I can guess your favorite clothing store favorite clothing store is it the gap <laughs> <laughs> ah that's a beautiful segue because the way that i uh, so i struggled with this for a long time right like my frustration with um all these voices saying oh you know it's if you earn more you'll end up spending more so clearly the solution is frugality like i got really frustrated hearing those voices and so eventually the compromise that i found the peace that i found with it was I started to realize that at the end of the day, both earning and saving are tactics, right? But what's the goal? The goal is not to earn or to save. The goal is to increase the gap between what you make and what you spend. And so earning more, spending less, both of those are tactics. But the ultimate objective is to grow the gap, mind the gap between what you earn and what you spend. And then once you've created that gap, you invest that gap and then and keep doing it. <laughs> well, so I'm actually, I mean, I love this discussion on philosophy and stuff, but I'm actually really curious on some of the technical aspects of your real estate investments. So I want to know as someone who obviously didn't have a real estate background. So you were writing for a newspaper, you go traveling, you come back, you're freelancing, and then you get into real estate. I would like to know what is the systems you built when in looking at a property and saying, okay, this one, this is a property that, that I can make money on because that's one thing that I'm struggling with right now. You know, I'm thinking about getting into real estate and it's like, you can read all these podcasts and everything, but it's like, you just wish you had like a cheat sheet, a checklist. What What is it that you look for when you go to look at a property? I get the you know, I get the way the math works out on income and, you know, what you need to rent it out for and what you put in it. But what is your actual checklist when you're looking at a property? 
Sure. The first thing that I do, and uh, as a disclaimer, this this was not what I did with my first property, but this was what I learned over time. The first thing that I do is I check to see if the property meets the 1% rule, which is, does the property rent for at least 1% of the purchase price? So in other words, for every $100,000 worth of home, does it rent for at least $1,000 a month? If it's a $200,000 home, it should rent for $2,000 a month. $300,000 should rent for $3,000 a month. That's the first pass sorting metric that I use. And if it meets that, then I'll look into it further. If it doesn't meet that, then I just pass it over. Now, the second thing that I do is if a property meets the 1% rule, when I say that I look into it further, what I really mean is that I calculate something that's called the cap rate. And the way that you do that is first you look at how much this property could rent for at full occupancy. So if it rents for $1,000 a month, that means it rents for $12,000 a year at 100% occupancy. Then you subtract out vacancies. So you'll Instead of it renting for 12000 a year, it'll rent for 12000 times 0.95. And then you add in any other income that it might get. So parking fees, uh, coin-operated laundry, pet fees, any other ancillary income that that property might have. And you are left with, at the end of all of that, your gross operating income on that property. And so then from that gross operating income, then you subtract out all of the operating expenses. So that would include repairs, maintenance, major capital expenses like replacing a roof, property management. In terms of the mortgage, a mortgage has four components, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. You separate out the principal and interest, but you do include the property taxes and the homeowner's insurance within the operating expenses. So then you take that gross operating income, you subtract out the operating expenses, and you're left with a number that's called the net operating income. Now, the net operating income divided by the price of the property and then multiplied by 100 so that it's expressed as a percentage, that is a figure called the cap rate, capitalization rate. And that figure represents essentially the dividend payment on a house. So it represents how much a house would, if you think of the house as a stock, it would be the dividend. It's the income stream from that house, the unleveraged income stream from that house relative to the cost of acquisition of that house. And so the total return on the total unleveraged return on a property would be that cap rate plus any capital appreciation. And if you conservatively estimate that as it keeping pace with inflation, but no more, which would be 3%, then that's how you can arrive at the unleveraged total return on a property. So that's what I look at. And then I noticed that when you started investing, though, you weren't investing houses locally around you. You started investing in Atlanta, correct? Oh, I was living in Atlanta at the time that I... Oh, you were living in Atlanta. Yeah. So I uh, bought all of my properties there, and then I moved away from Atlanta. I moved to Las Vegas three years ago. Okay. And the other thing I just noticed when you kind of started spouting off all those awesome metrics is, you know, that shows like a level of intelligence. And so that's one thing I'm curious what you think as far as you see a lot of these other people who say, you know, and maybe it's not about saving, you just need to earn more. Maybe you have some of the, or they don't have a saving problem. They have an earning problem. Do you think though that there's probably a a decent amount of people in those low income areas that just simply don't have that level of intelligence and ingenuity that you have and maybe that's not as realistic of a of an option? I don't think that I'm that smart. I think I just read a lot. And so <laughs> I think that what it what it takes is the willingness 
to read. It, certainly, if you were illiterate, you'd have it would be things would be a lot, lot, lot harder. And I think also even before the internet, when the only way to access information in the U.S. was through libraries, and you know it might be harder to get to a library because uh, maybe there isn't a good bus route there, or you can't get childcare. It was probably a lot harder back then. But now that you know what the internet did was it democratized access to information. It made it cheap, almost free and ubiquitous for anybody to access any information. And so now, the at least assuming that you can speak and read and write in English, the delineating factor is, are you willing to read and just read and read and read and read and read as much as possible? And listen to podcasts, of course. Definitely <laughs> listen to podcasts. <laughs> so Paula, we actually sent out a tweet, I know you saw it, and asked some listeners to ask some questions. And there's a perfect one to segue into here. And so I know that while you were in Vegas, you started remotely investing in Birmingham, Alabama. And mm -hmm. so Captain DIY asked, how did you get started investing in a different state? And so something I kind of wanted to touch on before was like, what physical attributes are you looking at when you're deciding on a property, but you don't exactly have that tangible luxury when you're investing from far away, from 2000 miles away. So I'd love if you could talk about some of the physical criteria you're looking at, numbers excluded when you're looking to buy that long range investment property. Cool. First of all, Captain DIY has the greatest uh, Twitter icon, like the greatest Twitter photo ever. <laughs> so everyone should follow him on Twitter. Shout out. <laughs> um, all right. So first to clarify, so I, I'm looking at properties in Birmingham, but I haven't bought anything there yet. Uh, okay. I haven't. Yeah, I've narrowed it down to my favorite neighborhoods there. And I have an agent there. So I've got the the ducks lined up. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, but I haven't purchased anything there yet. In terms of, I'm going to answer this question in two ways. There's what I look for in a city, and then there's what I look for in the property itself. Okay. In a city, and this kind of speaks to why I chose Birmingham, and I will say, I'll put another asterisk here. If I end up not investing in Birmingham, my other choice would be Cincinnati. So my next purchase will be in one of those two places, I think. But what I look for is a a diverse economy. So I don't want to be in a city that is overly reliant on just one industry or even worse, just one employer, because that has you know, the risk of suffering in the way that Detroit did. So I'll look for a diverse economy with a, a lot of different industries and a lot of different employers. Ideally, I'll look for something that is, it doesn't have to be a huge, but at least big enough that I have a selection of property managers, contractors, plumbers, electricians, people. I have a selection of people who can be on the team. I don't want to be in a town that's so small that there's one or two property managers in the town. And if they both suck, then I'm just SOL. <laughs> I'll look for a place ideally that is close to some type of major public transportation. Like by, by public transportation, I mean like an airport or a major interstate highway, so I guess that's not public transportation, but you know what I mean. <laughs> that's that's close to some type of major transportation. So again, I don't want something. I don't want to invest in a town that is so remote that it's hard to access. And of course, the place needs to, broadly speaking, have good price to rent ratios. All of that being said, like you know, both Birmingham and Cincinnati fit that bill really well. What I look for in homes there. So I only invest in residential properties which are single-family homes, duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes. Anything that's five units or above is considered commercial. 
Uh, and, you know, commercial is great. It's fine. Who knows? Maybe one day I'll go into it. But when you get into commercial, then lending is totally different. Insurance is totally different. Like a lot of the rules change. And so in order to keep it simple and focus on the doing one thing and doing that one thing really well, my specialty is buy and hold residential. In the house itself, all else being equal, I prefer, if it's a single family home or, or a duplex, I would prefer a one-story brick ranch with a simple roof line. And the reason for that is, in terms of the roof line, the more protrusions a roof has, chimneys and peaks and valleys, the more expensive it's going to be to replace. And if a property is two stories rather than one, that's also going to add a degree of complexity when it comes to the mechanicals. You know, when you've got a a one-story property, then the mechanicals are all going to be, especially if it has a crawl space. I would much rather buy something with a crawl space than something that's on a slab foundation. But if you're talking about a one-story property with a crawl space, you know that all the mechanicals are going to be either in the attic or in the crawl space, which means they're going to be easy to access versus a two-story where, you know, maybe you've got some mechanicals that are in the attic, but you need to fix something that's on the first floor. And then there's this whole, like, you got to navigate through that floor in between. And it's just, it just, that additional story adds additional complexity. So, yeah. So I, I guess to summarize, single-story brick ranch with a crawl space and a simple roof line. Love that. Love the tangibleness to those. That's like a very <laughs> specific. Another good question that we had coming in from the Twittersphere was from A Purple Life. And they said, so you have an amazing blog, podcast, social media presence, etc. And not that you need to, but is there anything new and crazy on the horizon? Oh, uh, so in... 2019, I will officially be launching my real estate investing course, which has been under construction for an embarrassingly long period of time, (laughs) like I think three years. And I have a second round of beta testers who are in there right now. And we're going through the course together. They've been great. They've given me some really good feedback. We've made a lot of adjustments to the course based on what they've said. So I'm very, very proud of this and very excited to roll it out. So that's like big in 2019. The other thing, speaking of single moms, actually, my best friend, best friend from college, I've known her for 15 years. She's going to have a baby and she's going to be a single mom. uh, And she lives in Austin, Texas. And so this is a perfect example of why reaching FI or FIRE is meaningful and important and is more than just drinking margaritas on the beach. (laughs) Like, I, I want to be there. Like, I want to you know, go be there for when that baby is born and like be there to support her, especially through that first month, because it's it's her first child and she's going to be a single mom and both of her parents have passed away. So, you know, we're she's my best friend and I have the ability to like not be tied to a nine to five job. I can just decide that I'm going to go spend a month in Austin to support my best friend and I can just do it. I can just buy a plane <laughs> ticket and go, you know? And like the biggest thing I have to worry about is who's going to feed my cat while I'm gone, right? <laughs> so Paula, on that same thread of, of time flexibility, this is another question from the Twittersphere. So Tim from Life for the Better is asking, what can someone who reaches fire do with the extra time that they have? Like what are some of the best ways that they can give back to the community? And do you have any plans of your own? Oh, yeah. So speaking of cats, uh, so I have joined a, the advisory board 
for a local and nonprofit cat cafe. Oh. So uh, it's opening up here in Las Vegas. It's called Meow or Never. And <laughs> they, uh, they take cats from shelters, like cats who might otherwise be put down because of shelter overcrowding. And they, they're opening a cat cafe. So that's super cool. Like to be able to be involved in that and to be part of that and like watch it open. Yeah. Um, and watch it become part of the, the downtown Las Vegas community is, I don't know. It's just, it's fun. It's really special. They've been doing because they're not open yet. So they've been doing these little pop up cafes. So every now and they do that to fundraise. And so every now and again on, on like a Saturday, I'll go and, and volunteer at the pop-up cafe, like selling tickets or selling cupcakes or, you know, just doing whatever they need me to do. That's awesome. Do you have any uh, other big international trips coming up? Ooh, um, well, I just came back from England and Scotland. I was there actually when that Susie Orman episode went viral. <laughs> that's That's, I was like noticing all of that from England. And, you know, I was like, Wait, what? I'm, I'm across the pond. What is going on right now? <laughs> um, nothing specific, but the next few places that I imagine that I will probably go, if I can make it there this winter, which I don't know if I can, I've been wanting to go to South Africa. I would go in December, except we're launching the course in January. And so that might just be a little bit too much. Then when we get to March, that's when my best friend's kid is due. So so I'll be in Austin. That basically takes us to the summer. And if it's summer in the Northern Hemisphere, then I don't want to go to South Africa because it would be winter there and screw winter. Um, so I suppose if I were to travel in the summer, then my next big international trip would probably be back to Europe. I make my I basically make all of my decisions in an effort to avoid winter. <laughs> Being in so, Boston, awesome. I do not blame you for that one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess the uh, I guess the answer is I'm not sure, but it'll just depend on the season and I'll go wherever is most seasonally appropriate. <laughs> and I just had a quick question about that Susie Orman episode. I just got to ask, like, when I listened to it, the thing that struck me was just how kind of calm you are. And you even prefaced the episode by just saying, I'm just here as an interviewer. I'm just asking questions. <laughs> Mentally, what was that like sitting there and just keeping calm and asking just very like, you know, you weren't being aggressive. You were just letting her talk. What was that like? Hmm. That's a good question. I was very much trying to come from a place of curiosity I really I wanted to deeply understand her perspective. And if she had left more pauses in the conversation, there were a lot of follow-up questions that I wanted to ask because so many things that she said just lent themselves to a lot of follow-ups. <laughs> but then I, I didn't really have a chance to ask that follow-up because she would keep talking and I didn't want to interrupt. So... Yeah, as she talked, there were just there were so many follow up questions that many, many more than I had the space to ask. So it wasn't difficult. Like it was it was very, very easy to really to just come from a place of asking questions because I just wanted to understand. Like I, I was curious and wanted to understand why she felt the way she felt. Awesome. Yeah, I, I totally respect you for that because I would have been like seething while I'm listening to that. <laughs> I couldn't believe your composure, but Props to you. That was awesome. Thank you. So I don't want to leave the last person hanging on the Twittersphere that mm -hmm. <laughs> left a question. So Paula, 
You've been immensely successful in your entrepreneurial career. You started making a six-figure income freelancing. You hit a million in net worth by, I think, around 30, you've disclosed before. Mm -hmm. If you could go back in time, would you change any of your investment choices and why? First of all, that's very good because I've I've said that net worth <laughs> thing a few times, but I haven't like promoted it a lot. So for <laughs> whoever knows that has been paying attention. <laughs> that's me. How nice. <laughs> <laughs> So if I could change any of my investing choices, I would have bought more rental properties. It's not the investing choices that I would have changed. It's the number one, I would have started working for myself or at least more aggressively side hustling a lot sooner because I, I worked for three years just kind of freelancing a little bit and then I traveled for two years and during those two years that I was traveling, I was so focused on saving money. Like if I hang out in Laos and don't move around too much so I don't incur a lot of transit expenses, then I can keep my budget to $10 a day instead of $12 a day. You know, <laughs> like like I was so hyper-focused on saving during that trip when for not that much more work, let's say an extra five hours a week, I could have been earning and I could have grown my income more. I'm certainly not suggesting that I should have pushed it to the point where I was completely out of balance. And I'm certainly not suggesting some crazy 80 or even 40 hour week. But I think that I hyper focused on saving because I doubted my ability to earn. I just didn't have that confidence. And if I had had that confidence, I would have acted accordingly. Like the fact that it took me, I know 18 months sounds quick when I say that I came back to the U.S. and it took me around 18 months before I I earned the equivalent of a six-figure salary. So I that was the first time that I earned a five-figure month. But when I say 18 months, those were like 18 months of lots of stress and self-doubt. And I think if I could have changed anything, I would have just known that I could have done it and gone after bigger clients right from the get-go. And yeah, I guess not wasted so much time doubting myself, which I, which I still do. Like, I guess, I, you know, that's, that's not um, something that you get over once. It's a daily practice. Don't doubt yourself, Paula. Come on. Ah, thank you. <laughs> so Paula, is there anything that we haven't really talked about today that you'd like to cover or that you could share with the audience hmm. before we get into the final questions? Ooh, dun, dun, dun. Uh, well, I, well, I guess I just want to say I hope I wasn't too harsh when I was talking about like my my frustrations with the dominant fire paradigm in terms of like, yes, I agree frugality is important. And yes, it's it's awesome that there are a lot of upper income people who are choosing not to live McMansion lives. So I do want to clarify that I am fully wholeheartedly in support of that. And I also think that we need more voices in the fire space that speak for low to moderate income people because I think that those voices and that experience is underrepresented in a lot of fire conversations. Yeah, before we move on to the final questions, I actually listened to your episode today that you released yesterday and you talked about the selection bias. And so the only people you hear about is people like you. You hear about Mr. Money Mustache. You hear about the Mad Scientist. It's all people earning these six-figure outsized incomes. You don't hear about the people who retired who are living on $20,000 a year just living their best life because they don't care. They don't want to be public, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like 
blogging, podcasting, like it's a lot of work. It's a ton, <laughs> as as you know, right? This yeah. is like this is a bunch of work. And the majority of people just don't want to do this kind of work. Like there are a lot of people who have made the lifestyle change, whether it's fully funded or not. But, you know, but fire people also who have made that fully funded lifestyle change, who they didn't make that lifestyle change so that they could then sit in front of their laptop in their closet on like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is where I record my podcast from, like sit inside of their closet on a warm, sunny afternoon when they otherwise could be out hiking. Right. <laughs> Those are the people who are out hiking. And because they're doing that, we don't hear about them. So the lesson there is that the people who are most public about fire, myself included, are not necessarily the people who are representative of the average early retiree, because a lot of them are doing way more interesting stuff than writing about it. Well, Paula, this has been you know a great episode, but for those people who just can't get enough of you and your story, they want to follow along with you, they want to you know, check out this new course you're launching and they just want to get in contact with you. Where's the best place they can do that? Ooh. Well, I have a, a free ebook. It's at affordanything.com slash escape. And that's a an ebook about the FIRE movement and the FIRE philosophy. Although I never actually use the acronym FIRE. And I'm not even sure if I use the phrase financial independence. It's more like a philosophy of life about escaping the nine to five and doing it in a way in which you've got a bunch of money. So... So yeah, so that's uh, I would I would encourage people to download that, and then you can find me by by listening to the Afford Anything podcast. I have a new episode that comes out every week, and I'm on Instagram at Paula Pant P A U L A P A N T. So feel free to say hi. Awesome. Well, we will link it up in the show notes. <laughs> cool. Thank and I'm you. definitely going to check out that ebook. Awesome. Something we like to ask all of our guests is, what is your number one tangible tip for someone who's just starting out? on this path of financial independence? Like what is the one thing if you were to tell them to do that they can get started today doing? Well, the one thing is grow the gap because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're focusing on earning or you're focusing on cutting. Like at the end of the day, it's all about that gap between what you make and what you spend. So grow the gap, invest the gap, repeat until free. That's, that's basically the formula. <laughs> have you tried getting gap as a sponsor in your podcast <laughs> <laughs> they read the line about her buying all her clothes oh. at target and it's like mm, sorry i can't do it <laughs> <laughs> all righty paula so now we're ready for the real star of the show now this is the question that you're obviously not ready for no one is ready for because it's been kept secret under military grade encryption until just seconds ago and so we're unleashing it here for you it's the wild dun, card dun, dun. question you ready paula <laughs> i'm ready <laughs> So if you could interview any human being from any time period, who would it be? Oh, from any time period. Okay, when you said any human being, my first thought was Oprah. <laughs> but any time period, so any human being in all of history. Well, I mean, I'm inclined to say either Buddha or Jesus. <laughs> uh, I have a feeling that interview would... Well, that interview would certainly go viral. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a safe bet. I think that's a safe bet. <laughs> Probably less ranting, though. I don't know. I mean, you'd, you'd think. I feel like it'd be a calmer demeanor than the, your previous viral. I, I guess now that I said it out loud, neither of them spoke English. So I would... <laughs> 
<laughs> so I'm assuming that I would have a translator or I would magically be able to speak in their language or they would be able to speak in mine. <laughs> that works for this scenario. Yeah, I, th- I think it's fair to say that uh, I think Jesus could pull off speaking English. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if he can walk on water, he can speak English. He's fine, Paul. <laughs> well, Paul, this has been such a treat, and I've been such a big fan of your podcast and your work for the past few years. So thank you so much for coming on our podcast, just sharing your knowledge, sharing your story, and kind of enlightening us to your philosophy. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, Paula, I love some of the insights you gave, and I like how technical you are and tangible you are. This was not just a, a ton of fluff. You're giving some some real insight and some different ways of looking at philosophy. So I really, I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's okay. funny. No, no one has ever asked me about the the physical components of a house that I like. So when I was like, okay, brick ranch, simple roof line. Uh, cross face. <laughs> that was super tangible. I was, I was. Pumped. It's got to be on the yeah. even side of the street. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, Justin, we definitely kicked off the new year right with this episode. And Paula's story just runs the gamut. I mean, she started making twenty four thousand dollars a year in journalism, and now she's a hyper successful podcaster and blogger. And her story is just so unique and so interesting. And I just kind of love chatting with her and listening to her perspectives because I think she really resonated with both of us. Yeah, I think that was a really interesting look where she's like, "Man, I really want to do study abroad, but actually, you know what? I don't want to study abroad. I just want to go abroad. And so, why do I want to spend all this money extra in college to go over there when that's all I really want to do is travel?" So she kind of sucks it up, joins the normal workforce, not making a ton of money for a few years so she can fund that dream to go travel. And then it turns out that's the last time she ever worked for another person. That's pretty insane. And I just love how inspirational she is in the sense that she was making, what, like $100 an hour freelancing or something like that after she came from the background of writing every day, all day for $24,000 a year. And so she's just kind of crushing limiting belief after limiting belief, like, She just shows you that it is possible. If you put your nose to the grindstone, if you make all the right moves, if you're smart and intentional about what you're doing with your life, you can just really crush this five game. Yeah. When you're talking about, you know, dispelling those beliefs, another thing is that idea that you can only make a lot of money in these certain career fields like engineering or being a doctor. You know, she proved that even though writing is normally looked at as a lower income job, if you take it and become your own boss and just focus on the freelancing, that you can make a lot of money doing that. So Whatever your passion is, even if it doesn't look super lucrative at surface level, there's a way to spin it into your own business and to really make a lot of money on it. And I think you're so right about that, Justin, but it's not just the things you're passionate about. Because if you just go into, say, art and you're painting all day, it might not be the most lucrative job, but kind of getting to the next level, getting that little slight edge and figuring out how to monetize it. And that's just kind of a thread throughout Paula's life. Like she figured, oh, I don't want to pay $200 anymore or whatever she was paying for rent. I'll go buy this triplex. And that's kind of how she got started. She just got started by doing. And that seems like a recurring theme with a lot of our guests and some of the most successful people in the world. They just get started. Even if they fail at the beginning, they learn from their mistakes and they just build and build and build until they're an expert. Yeah. I mean, she's really got everything. Oh my God. (laughs) Justin, what was that? (laughs) It's another one of these freaking call to actions, man. All right, so this week's call to action, and Paula just highlights this so beautifully. If you are earning $10,000 a year, 
it's going to be really dang hard to hit financial independence. So our call to action this week is for you to increase your income, whether it's picking up a side hustle, whether it's figuring out a better way to monetize your main hustle, just figure out how to get to that next level, whether it's reading books or blogs or listening to podcasts like ours, just figure out what you can do to further monetize your passions and the things you're good at. Yeah, Cody, that's a fantastic call to action. And this whole episode has been fantastic. And if you want to get all those details and more information, you should go look at our show notes at thefyshow.com slash Paula. If you want to be a part of our bigger community and Facebook group, go to thefyshow.com slash community. And then also, we love that feedback and hearing from you guys. So make sure you leave us a voicemail at thefyshow.com slash voicemail. Thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. 